Philippians chapter 1, verses 28 through 30. The title of this message is Behave as Citizens. But before we start, I want to do something different. I want all of us to stand to our feet as we read through the text, and then you guys can sit down, okay? So let's all stand. And as you guys are standing, I'm going to kind of tell you why this is sometimes good to do. I'm not sure if you guys have ever seen the president of the United States walk into a room. When he walks into the room, everyone stands out of respect for that office. And it's something that you do. If the president were to come here, you would stand out of respect. When the bride actually walks in to get married, everyone stands and looks at the bride. It's a sign of respect, and that's what we want to do, is we want to respect God's word and allow it to speak to us. And so some churches actually, every time they gather and they read, they all stand, they read, and then they sit down. And so it's nice to do it once in a while just to remind us to have reverence for God's word. So we're going to start at actually verse uh, 19 through 30, and then you guys can have a seat. Verse 19, it says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I can come and see or am absent and I may hear of your affairs that you stand in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries which is to them a proof of perdition but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. You guys can take a seat. So, we did a little bit of a recap of last week's message we read through the text and Paul says the things that are taking place um, it's happening for the furtherance of the gospel he wants his main desire is to have Christ magnified and he says for me to live as Christ and to die is to gain and I just love Paul's heart throughout this whole entire letter and I think I've told you already as I've been studying this I keep getting convicted I keep getting stirred up to love Jesus more and allow him more access of my heart and my life. And so I want to remind us 
The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. And we are in a constant battle, not only in this room, at home, at school, wherever we are at, we are in a battle. There is an all-out war taking place, and the enemy of your soul will do everything in his power to take you out, to kill you, to make you at odds with other people, to tempt you. And so Paul here gives us some very practical things that we ought to do in the midst of the battle, basically, and how we ought to conduct ourselves here as we live this life. In verse 27, he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word conduct in the Greek literally means to live as a citizen or only behave as citizens. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, he's encouraging them and exhorting these believers. He says, behave as citizens. He's addressing their behavior here. I'm not sure if you guys have ever heard this quote before, but it goes like this. Your beliefs dictate your behavior. What you truly believe will influence how you behave. If you believe Jesus is coming back tomorrow, you will behave drastically different today. And I know people who live with that reality. And it actually is stirring because I'm kind of convicted. I was like, I know that scripturally. I know that kind of intellectually. But do I know that and live that out as that is true? Because Jesus says, when a thief comes, it, the thief doesn't send you a letter, doesn't send you a text and an email saying, hey, I'm going to rob you tonight at five o'clock. Like, he doesn't do that. A thief comes at an unexpected hour, and Jesus is going to come at an unexpected time. Are we ready? Your beliefs dictate your behavior. If you have the wrong beliefs, if you think death, once you die, you cease to exist, that's going to influence the way you live here on this earth. Wrong beliefs lead to wrong behavior. Right beliefs lead to right behavior. And that's what Paul is addressing here. Your beliefs determine your behavior. And he wants these Christians in Philippi to behave like citizens. Citizens. Now, Philippi prided itself on being a Roman colony, offering a high honor and privilege as being a Roman citizenship. So Paul reminds them that their primary allegiance and alliance is to God and his kingdom, not to Rome or Caesar. Kind of like, I think there are some Christians who are more American than are more Christians. They're more sold out for their rights as a United States citizen than what they are as a believer. And the same thing should be true for us. We shouldn't be more dedicated to our country. We need to be more dedicated to Christ above all things. And that's one thing I remember in Hudson Taylor's book, Spiritual Secrets. He says, he goes, dude, if I have to give up my country for the sake of Jesus, he goes, I will do it. We need to be all about citizens of heaven. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, your address, when, as soon as you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your earthly address changes, and it permanently changes to heaven. You become a citizen of heaven. And he says, because of that, we should wait with this anticipation, this desire that Jesus is going to show up at any moment. I remember this when I was in high school. As a sophomore or junior, actually, as a junior in high school, I finally was able to afford buy my own personal surfboard. So I paid like $250 to buy a surfboard so I can go surfing with Dustin on Fridays. And so I was homeschooled and he had Fridays off. And so we would go surfing almost every Friday of my junior year of high school. But every time we would go surfing, I would look forward to it. I would get everything laid out the night before. In the morning of, I would wake up early. I would eat breakfast. I would have my stuff ready. And I would kind of be like waiting. Kind of tapping my fingers, kind of like, all right. And I looking at the time, I was like, all right, it's like 6 o'clock. He should be here. And I look outside, and it's like, all right, I don't see his car. And this one specific day, I looked, and I was like, all right, he's not here. 6.05. I was like, all right. I looked out again. He's like, he's not here. 6.10. I was like, all right, he's 10 minutes late. That's not normal. And he's texting me. And I like looked out, and I was like, all right, he's not here. 6.20. He's like, 6.30 now. I was like, what's going on? I was like, where is he at? And so I literally opened the door. I go into the middle of the street, look, look both ways. I was like, I don't see him anywhere. I was waiting with anticipation. Apparently, he got pulled over by the cops for texting and driving. Um, but that's another story. And then he finally came and picked me up. But we should live with that anticipation. Is Jesus coming tomorrow, tonight? Now, here's a question I want you guys to answer. How do you tell if someone is from a different country? Their accent. Their accent, right? If they have an Irish accent or a British accent or Scottish. Actually, do you guys find it, when someone has an accent, it's way more easier, or way easier to listen to that person? I had a Scottish professor in Bible college, and I could listen to him all the time. It was just like, dude, your voice is so tight. <laughs> So by the, the way they speak? Uh, their appearance. Their appearance, true. By the way they dress. Because sometimes in different um, countries, they dress a little differently. They have different brand names. True. So by their speech, by their dress? Actually, their grammar. My mom grew up in Mexico, and the way she speaks English, her grammar is like Mexican grammar. True. Their grammar is different. And even like just the words they use. I had a friend in Ireland. Uh, actually, they grew up in Ireland. And they would come over to the United States to visit us sometimes. And they don't call French fries French fries. They call them chips. And they call chips French fries. Instead of soda, they call it pop. They have all of these weird kind of different ways they like say things. You are going to say something? Their color. Their color, true. You can sometimes de determine from where they are at. If it's a colder climate in different areas. Is there any other things? I think all those facts are pretty on point. But I think even by their behavior. You can tell by the way someone acts and responds that they're not from where you are at. 
when I go to New York and I've gone there a couple of times, they've actually even said, hey, you're not from here, are you? Because New Yorkers will get on the subway, put their headphones in, and you will be shoulder to shoulder like this and someone's armpits in your face and you're not saying a word. Everyone's invading your personal bubble, literally, and everyone's not talking to each other. It's the weirdest thing. And so if you start talking to people, they're like, all right, you're not from New York. Where are you from? And they know that you're from out of town. Sadly, Americans have a bad um, what's the reputation? That's the word. Bad reputation around the world. Because you can go to uh, France and the people of French or France, French, uh, they actually don't like Americans, because Americans can be rude, and we aren't very polite. So by the way we live, we can tell where someone's from. I remember, um, I might have been in junior high, we had my cousin, like a second cousin or a third cousin, I don't know. He lived in Texas, but he came out and he was visiting, and so we took him to our house, and he's like, oh my gosh, this is where you guys live? Now, my cousin owns a thousand acres in Texas or something like that, a hundred or a thousand, I don't know, it's a massive number. His next door neighbors are literally miles away. So when he came to Chino, he's like, dude, your houses are so close together. He was like, his mind was like blown. He goes, how do you guys live like this? And then all of a sudden, when he came inside and looked out our sliding glass door, he kind of got startled. He's like, excuse me, like, ma'am, that's a coyote. And then we're like, no, that's our dog. He goes, no, that's a coyote. Like, I hunt those on our property. And we're like, oh, cool, we own a coyote as a dog. I kind of finally confirmed it. Um, and she could hop a six-foot wall like nothing. But he was noticing his surroundings were a lot different. He was kind of like, like, almost like an alien in a foreign place. He's like, oh, how do people live like this? And you can tell. He was question. He had, he was very curious and you could tell that he was not from California and he had a Texan accent. See, this is the same way we as believers should stand out in this world because this world is not our home and our citizenship is in heaven. How do you or how do heavenly citizens behave? Well, if you're taking notes first and foremost by the way or by what we don't do. You can tell somebody by the things that they don't do. They're not behaving like everybody else in that society. They're not doing everything else to fit in. They're standing out. Heavenly citizens don't behave like the rest of the world because we are in the world, but we are not of the world, like a boat. The boat is in the water, but when you get the water in the boat, that's a problem, right? Because the more water you get into the boat, the more the boat's going to sink and become one with the ocean. We are not to become one with the world. Sometimes we do get water thrown on us and our boat begins to sink. That's when we need to get a bucket and start taking the world's philosophy, the world's way of thinking, the world's music, the world's TV, and start chucking it out of our own boat so that we continue to float. And we don't allow the world to influence our behavior. The second thing is by the way we speak to each other and to non-believers. Jesus says you will know them by their love for one another. Can people know 
that you're a Christian by how you love other believers? Or do they not even see that? The way we speak to one another. We should not speak as the world speaks. We should have a totally different vocabulary. Now, I'm not saying Christianese, okay? I'm not saying that we should all speak these Christianese words, and sometimes we start doing that. But we should not speak like the world. And one thing that really bothers me is when Christians actually talk and speak like the world. When Christians cuss, that gets under my skin. Now, I, I don't, I'm not judging somebody. People struggle with different things. But when you're in a room full of other Christians and you just allow things to slip without any shame, without any kind of thought, it bothers me. Because that's how the world talks. We shouldn't be talking like that. See, the, my friends from Ireland, they had different words and terms for different things, like I said, fries, chips, pop, soda. <laughs> we, too, have different words and terms for things as well. That's why it's important for us, and that's why I so often in my teachings will define words, the Greek or the English, because we live in a world now today where words are being twisted and manipulative. They're, they're being changed at its very core. The world will call two guys in a romantic relationship love. Our language says that's sin. You get the point? Our words should look different than the world's. We should not conform to what everyone else is talking like. We shouldn't make dirty jokes like them. We should be different. Third, by the way we dress, we should dress different from the world. Now, ladies, I'm not saying you guys should wear these jean dresses and be like modish, not modish people, Amish people. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that you should dress like that. You can have style and wear nice things, but we have to be mindful of the way we dress. The clothing that we have on. Sometimes in the past, we've had um, students in high school ministry, when I was back in high school, they had this desire to lead worship. And so they're like, all right, we'll give you a chance. But then all of a sudden, they're leading worship with this secular band shirt on that doesn't promote Christ, that it doesn't have anything to do with the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that we can't wear those things but we should allow the Lord to have his authority over every aspect of our lives. If we're saying, Lord, you can only have my soul and that's it, is then he the Lord of your life? Jesus, when he comes in and knocks on the door and he says, hey, and you say, you can either let him into your life or not. And when you let him into your life, sometimes we let him into the living room and like, Jesus, you got to stay here, but all the other rooms are off limits. The garage, all these other rooms, but God, Jesus like starts walking around and starts exploring things. You're like, no, 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 Jesus, please, not the kitchen. And then all of a sudden he takes over the kitchen. And now he can remove freely from the kitchen to the living room. And then he goes to the dining room. 
And you're like, fine, you can have the dining room. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, he starts going into the places of your hearts, of your house, into your rooms, and there are certain closets you don't want him to open. And you're saying, no, Lord, you can't have that. You can't have this spot. We should give him authority over every aspect, our tongue, our eyes, what we dress, what we say. Because we are heavenly citizens. He has changed us and has done so much for us. This is the least we can do for him. By the way we walk, by the way we behave, and by the way we love one another, the, this is how heavenly citizens behave. We walk differently, not with pride in our hearts, but with this humility of saying, I am a sinner undeserving of salvation. And what God could, did for me, he can do for you. The way we behave. And see, this is cool. God wants to transform us from the inside out. He doesn't say, he doesn't put his arm up and says, hey, clean yourself up first before you come to me. He says, come with all your baggage. Come with all your sin. And he goes, I will deal with it. I did that. I struggled with anger growing up. I've told you already, I've chased my siblings around with a kitchen knife trying to stab them. I hated my family. The Lord changed my behavior because I encountered Jesus and he started to increase, I started to decrease. All of this should reflect that we are saved, that we are born again, that we do have a new nature and our address is in heaven. We are citizens of heaven temporarily on this earth. And that's the gospel. It has the power to transform our lives. If it doesn't transform our lives, then it's not the gospel. If you say you believe in Jesus, but he hasn't transformed you, sometimes there might be a problem, but also there's a process. I don't expect perfection from any of you. I don't. Because I know how the Lord's dealt with me and how much God has given me grace and has been patient with me. But we ought to behave like heavenly citizens. Now, to behave like heavenly citizens, this doesn't happen overnight. This is not something we just pray about and it automatically, boom, we've arrived. When Paul says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he's basically saying, we have to purpose within ourselves to live this way. We have to make up our minds to behave like Christians, like Daniel did. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, he says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. I love this because in other translations in the New American Standard version, it says he made up his mind. I think our problem is we haven't made up our minds because we want the world and we want Jesus as well. And we're trying to hold on to both. But Jesus says, you can't ride the fence. You have to choose a side. And so is our desire, we have to take our desire and say, you know what, I'm going to make up my mind. I'm going to choose to purpose within myself. I'm going to determine to honor the Lord. And since our citizenship is in heaven, 
That means we are pilgrims and ambassadors here on earth. The word pilgrim is those who are uh, living as foreigners in a land. So if we, our citizenship is in heaven, on earth, we're foreigners here. This is not our home, yet we make it our home so much. I'll never forget the story of this one guy who was a criminal, but he got out of prison very fast. And they interviewed him. He goes, how did you get out of prison so fast? He goes, I never decorated my cell. We have all these men in prison and women who decorate their cell, who put things up, and they make their cell their home. He says, no, this place is not my home. It is temporary. That needs to be our mindset here. This place here is not our home. It's temporary. And that's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, verses 11 through 12. It says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain, stay away from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. He says, in the way we live, and they start accusing you, you can say, all right, bring it. (laughs) Those are accusations and they're false. They're not even real. My good works prove those things that are wrong. And that can bring God honor and glory. We are ambassadors. An ambassador is an official who lives in a foreign country who represents his own country. We live here on the world, but we are representing heaven. We are representing Jesus. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I love this. Paul, he says, I'm an ambassador. He goes, I'm representing Jesus to you. And he's saying, it's as if God through me is urging you. Hey, turn back to the Lord. Come back, repent of your sin, forsake that sin. And come running to Jesus. Don't wait. Don't put it off. He says, now is the time for salvation. Be reconciled. Let your relationship with Jesus change. Permanently, forever. From enemies to children of God. We are citizens of heaven. And we are to walk worthy. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Now, this does not mean you and I have to live in such a way where we earn salvation. Because you and I can do nothing to earn salvation. Your good works do not bring you closer to heaven in the aspect of salvation. Because salvation is a free gift and it's received by grace through faith. The evidence of being saved should be visible in our lives, that our lives have been transformed and changed. In our behavior, our speech, our smile looks differently. I remember one time, because we go hang out at In-N-Out afterwards on Wednesday nights, that Mike Manzano pulled out all of his old driver's license and how his face changed in each one. 
And as a high schooler, when he took his photo, most high schoolers don't like smile, they frown, like mm, try to look hard or whatever. My first photo, I look high. Like honestly, it's a terrible photo. Like the lady didn't tell me when she was taking the photo, so my eyes are like halfway closed. I was like sunburnt. I looked high, and then Andy looked like the drug dealer. Um, and so everyone really has like a bad first photo. But you could see in his photos how he actually can't even, he goes, I can't even frown anymore. And it's just his, his smile has changed. And the Lord is able to do that. And it's evident only because of God's grace and what he's doing in our hearts and our lives. Remember, Christianity is not about what we do for Christ. It's what Christ has done for us. And in response to that, we live differently. Continuing on in this verse, he says, So that whenever I am come and see or am absent and may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here, Paul is speaking about unity. Unity. And this is something I believe all of us can improve on more. Unity is not just the absence of disagreements or arguments. No, it's much more than that. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, he says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one a Father of all, who is over all and through all and in you all. He says there has to be this unity among believers. But I want you to notice the very first three words. Make every effort. What efforts are you making to be unified with each other in this room? Sometimes... I think we make no effort to be unified. Other times, I think we make some effort. And then we say, well, I've tried. I've done my part. It's on them to do the rest. Have you? Have you lived out this verse? That not just Paul, the apostle, but God himself, who is writing through Paul, penned this for all of eternity so that you and I can learn from. Are we making every effort on our part to love each other, to fight against the division and things that will drive us apart? We need to make up our minds to make every effort to stay united. You know why? Because it pleases the Lord. He loves it. Psalm 133 verse 1 Behold, he says, look at this. Let this, fix your minds on this thing. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity together. God's like, oh, it's so sweet when my kids get along. You know what drives parents nuts? Is when their kids fight, right? When you start getting on each other's nerves, nerds, nerves, and you start bickering and fighting. There was one time I saw this on a TV show and I was like, I got to try this. And so in the back of the car, I was in the middle seat and I look around, make sure my parents weren't looking. I was like, ow, Kenton, why'd you hit me? And my dad reaches back and smacks him, goes, knock it off. And Ken's like, 
Well, I didn't do anything. It worked perfectly. It was great. My plan succeeded. Um, but parents don't like the bickering. What brings them joy is when they love each other, the kids. I won't even forget at my uncle's funeral last week on Thursday, my two cousins that their grandpa died. I saw my cousin Johnny, who's about your guys' age, come over to his sister and put his arm around his sister and just love on her. And I was like, that's what pleases God. When we care for one another and put our own interests aside. See, we have an enemy, guys. And this enemy hates whatever God loves and loves whatever God hates. And since God loves unity, the enemy hates it and will do everything in his power to divide us, to separate us, to keep us from being united. If he can divide us, he can conquer us. I got to experience this firsthand in playing soccer this last year. <clears throat> we were part of an indoor team and we were not doing the best, um, but we started this game and it was normally five on five in an indoor field. But then all of a sudden, the other team didn't have five. Their one player didn't show up. And so they said, we'll take you on with four. And we said, okay. And they picked us apart like nothing, like just cut through our defense and it got to us, and especially one of our teammates who was kind of getting frustrated and getting heated and blaming us for things that wasn't even really our fault. And it caused us to lose the game. We outnumbered them, but numbers have nothing to do with it. The enemy knows that. He knows how to pick us apart. He knows how to plant seeds like God does. And he'll plant lies into our hearts and he will water those over time so that they can take roots and bear ugly fruit. And these ideas that aren't true about one another. God says, beware lest a root of bitterness take root in your heart. It was that day the enemy divided us and we lost. Is the enemy in this room? Absolutely. And it's not the pretty sin sitting next to you. <laughs> you think Satan doesn't come to church? He loves to divide people, guys. We have to be on guard. This place here is not just a place where the enemy is not welcome, but the enemy is here also. We've had many things stolen. That's why we tell you girls to be careful. Don't just leave your purses around. Someone walked out with a high school computer one time. Um, back when iPods were big, my sister bought her boyfriend at the time an iPod video and it was playing through the speakers and then all of a sudden like, like, wait dude, there's no music playing. Someone just straight up stole the iPod and walked away. There's sinners here. We should not be surprised by that. We should expect that. We should love one another. But we have to have our guards up and make sure the enemy doesn't divide us. We should question when all of a sudden we are thinking evil towards another person in the body of Christ. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I having these thoughts towards this person? Why, why is there bitterness? Why is there this hatred? Because it might not be anything to do with that person. It might have to do with you. 
in your heart, which is a harder pill to swallow. Trust me. He says, stand fast in one spirit. That means continue to be united, to stand firm, to be unmovable. Stand fast in one mind. One mind. What does that mean, to have one mind? Are we all supposed to think the same way? Oh, that'd be gross <laughs> if we all thought the same way. Are we all supposed to be mentally connected? <laughs> what does that mean, to be of one mind? Remember, this chapter is about Paul having a single mind. And the amount of times Christ is mentioned is, in the first chapter, I think, is 18 times alone. Do we have that mind, that one mind that is focused on Jesus, that single mind, living for the Lord, pleasing the Lord, drawing other people to Christ? Our mind should be about God's glory. We should all be focusing on that. And when you actually get your eyes off of yourself and onto the Lord and onto other people to help them not to find faults or flaws, it changes things. Look at what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. He says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, and be courteous. Notice, he doesn't say some of you. He says all of you, every single one of you believers. Be of one mind. Be united in that goal and the objective to get the gospel out there because people are dying without Jesus. Have the goal to love others, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Now, sometimes brothers get on each other's nerves, right? Siblings do. Expect that. Learn from it. But be tenderhearted towards each other. And courteous. Look at the next phrase. I don't know about you guys, but verse 27 to me has so many layers. It's so deep. And that's why we're spending a lot of time here. It says striving together. Striving together. This does not mean fighting, okay, together or fighting against one another. It means to strive at the same time with one another. Picture, have you guys ever seen the Olympics and they're all like in rowing together? And they're just like, whew. That to me is nuts. That is teamwork at its finest. They're all striving together to win the gold medal. And they're giving it their all. That's the idea, to have a united effort. The word translated striving together actually is where we get our English word athletics. Crazy, right? God's word is awesome. Paul pictures the church here as a team. And he reminds them that it takes teamwork to win. It takes teamwork to win. That's why when Paul even wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, or no, 22, he says, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, pursue holiness. And he lists all these things to pursue, he goes, with one another. He goes, we are to pursue these godly goals with each other, not just by ourselves. That is what we are, ought to be doing. We are a team of athletes. We ought to be training, helping one another out. We can't be a team if we are focused on what everyone else is doing. And if I'm over here saying, Gianno's doing this, like, man, like, that's, that's not cool, man. I'm focusing on Gianno and not the Lord and what I'm called to do. 
Sometimes we need to stay in our lane and focus on the Lord. Now, the key word there is together. It takes a united efforts to be together. And then he says, for the, fellowship, or for the faith of the gospel. Remember, there's these three words, the fellowship, the furtherance, and the faith, all connected by the gospel. We share in the gospel. We want the gospel to be furthered, and we have this common faith in the gospel. In verse 27, he says, Not in any way terrified by our adver- your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Walking worthy of the gospel includes being courageous in the, faith of, in the face of adversities and opposition. It seems that these believers in Philippi were facing some persecution from the Roman citizens there. And Paul is telling them, don't be terrified by the enemies of the gospel. Now, that's kind of a hard thing to do, right? When you're being attacked for your faith, how do you not be terrified? Well, if we're actually reading the Bible and we're staying connected to Jesus, we should already have received these warnings throughout all four Gospels, throughout many of the letters. We get warned over and over about persecution. God actually has prepared us for the persecution and the rejection that will come. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22 says, You will be hated. Isn't that a verse that you guys love? (laughs) You will be hated by all for my namesake. Notice, it's for his namesake that we will be hated. It's because you have something in common with Jesus, and they see Jesus in you, and because they crucified Jesus, it doesn't mean they're going to crucify you, but they hate you as well. All will hate you. Sometimes that even means family members. But take courage in this. Psalm 27, verse 10. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. The Lord will take care of you. Live for him. Honor him. Put him first. Love him supremely. See, this courage in the face of persecution has a twofold effect. It will actually be proof to your enemies that they will be destroyed. The word perdition there means destruction. By your confident faith in the Lord, and you're not like fearing them, it's proof that they're going to be destroyed. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but for God's wrath uh, remains on him. And so, he says the second thing that it takes place is this courage or this fearlessness is proof that you are saved and that the Lord will deliver us finally. Paul had this type of faith. He faced persecution in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, but the Lord delivered him. We'll close it out here, verses uh, 29 and 30. He says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me now here is in me. Paul is saying here that it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. That it's a gift. Now, we wouldn't put gift and suffering in the same sentence together, right? 
That doesn't sound pleasant. That's not something I want as a gift. If that's a gift, please keep it. <laughs> we might think this is strange. And I'll be honest with you guys. I don't know this fully myself. I know this partially, very little, but because the Bible says it and I've taught it over and I know this, but I just don't know it by personal experience. See, parts of the privilege of having our faith in Jesus Christ is sharing with the life of Christ. But if you want all the life of Christ, you got to have the suffering with the glory. The glory doesn't come before the suffering. The cross became, came before the crown. He had the crown of thorns before he had the crown of glory. But they go together. There was the cross and Jesus' death, but you have to experience that sometimes before you can experience the resurrection. It ties it all in together, and Paul actually uh, illustrates this and kind of touches on this in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. He says, That I would be found in him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, that, I, that if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to know Jesus, every aspect of him. The glory, the suffering, you name it. I just want it all. And you might be thinking, I've never seen anybody rejoicing over the fact that they're being persecuted and they're, being, they're suffering for Jesus' sake. Well, if you haven't, here's one. Acts chapter 5, verses 41 through 42, it says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, this is a strange picture, right? They get out of jail and they're like high-fiving each other. They're like, yeah. We get to suffer and share in Jesus' suffering. This is what happens when you give Jesus everything. He changes your perspective, your attitude, your mindset, your outlook on every inch of life. I've read stories of stories of saints who have suffered and God has given them tremendous blessings and enablements to endure the suffering. And the same thing is true for us. But before we suffer for Christ, we have to know Him personally as our Savior. There's a difference between suffering for things that you've done and suffering for Jesus' name. We sometimes suffer for our wrong choices and for our poor decisions. That should not be blamed on Jesus. That's us and we need to own it. But there are things when we actually stand up for the Lord where sometimes people get fired for their job, at their job because they're a Christian and they're doing things for the Lord. I remember my dad, when he worked for my uncle, he would not share on the job because he goes, that's company time. Sometimes the Lord would prompt him, but he wouldn't want to take that time up because he wanted to honor the Lord with a good work ethic. And there was men on the job, they were like, dude, slow down, Todd. Like, you're working too fast. He goes, dude, you're working too slow. Like, he goes, let's get this done. And the, my dad would share at lunch with different guys. 
handing out tracts. He led people to the Lord. Some people will try to share Jesus at times that are not okay, when they're supposed to be working. There are times to preach, and there's times to preach through our actions. The way we live should demonstrate what we believe and why we believe it. We need to make up our minds to live for the Lord, to behave like citizens of heaven. We must be purposeful to stay united and make every effort to stay united and to keep the enemy out from dividing us and making us attack one another. And we should do it for the Lord, having one mind and one spirit. Because this is the mindset of joy. If you guys want to have joy, this is Paul's antidote. Strive together. Let the Lord live in and through you. Do it for the faith of the gospel. Have this one mind focused on Jesus.